Evening's Bible reading is taken from 1 Peter, chapter 1, verse 13, to chapter 2, verse 3. It's on page 1014. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially, according to um, each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forth fathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and evil and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. This is the word of the Lord. So we still stuck uh, in the, the book of First uh, Peter, and I use stuck uh, not in any negative term. Um, it's one of my favorite books. Uh, in fact, this whole uh, series is titled after a song I made called uh, Elect Exile. It's nothing that I came up with. It's clearly in the text in chapter 1. Um, and so this is something I'm, I'm passionate about. And if you have been with us for the past two weeks, uh, you probably heard David and Reggie uh, preach from chapter 1. Um, and if you haven't checked that out, please go onto our website and follow those sermons. Um, they'll actually be helpful. Um, for for this whole series. So let me pray for us uh, to ask God to help us uh, to uh, just hear him speak to us this evening. So let's bow our heads uh, and let me pray. Lord Jesus, we just want to thank you uh, that you have not left us, uh, you haven't forsaken us, uh, but you've called us uh, to be with you, called us to be like you. And Lord, it's not an easy task, uh, but it is a task that you would guide us for, nonetheless, provide the means so that we can get it done. Um, And so, Lord, even as we look at what you said more than 2,000 years ago to these Christians who were in exile, away from the home they wanted to be at, and that is with you, those same truths apply to us. Because as we sit here, if we trust and believe in you, Lord, we are counted as those who are elect exiles as well. So please help us, Lord to go live as such. In your precious name we do pray. Amen. 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 So today's talk is titled, 
are always ready for action. So I want you to high-five your neighbor and say, get ready for action. <laughs> Hallelujah. Turn to your other neighbor and say, hey, wake up, get ready for action. <laughs> so that's the attitude we need to keep, uh, even as, as this whole series comes to an end, uh, that we remember what God has been saying to us so that we can actually go out into our workspaces, into our families, into our communities, to the more wherever we find ourselves, to go and live as elect exiles. I just want to start off with a thought from a Matt Chandler sermon I heard a couple of uh, weeks ago. And I'm paraphrasing because obviously Matt Chandler is brilliant and he said it more um, eloquently than I'm going to put it. Uh, but, but here's the thought. Matt Chandler said that if you are a non-Christian and you find Christianity boring, then you're not talking about biblical Christianity. You might be talking about cultural Christianity or or nominal Christianity, but you are not talking about biblical Christianity. On the other hand, if you are a believer, and for some reason you come to the point where you believe that Christianity is boring, then brother or sister, you are not living it right. Because Christianity could be many things, but it's far from boring. Even as we just take a glance at the passage that was read earlier on for us, you'll see that there's nothing boring here. So I want you to fix your eyes on these verses. We're just going to glance through them. Uh, In verse 13, Peter says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action. Church, there's nothing boring about preparing your minds for action. There's nothing boring about striving to be sober-minded in that same verse. If you jump over to verses 14, there is nothing boring about staggering into obedience to Jesus Christ. In verses 15 and verses 16, he says, be holy as I am holy. There's nothing boring about the pursuit of holiness. If you jump over right there in verses 22, he says, purify your souls by the obedience to the truth and sincere brotherly love. There is nothing boring about striving to love broken, sinful Christians like we are. Christianity could be many things, but it's not boring. It could be challenging. It could be transformative. It could be uh, 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 leading you to a place where you question your heart and where you stand, but it is not boring at all. In fact, listen to what a gentleman by the name of uh, Wayne Dedner said. He says, the church of Jesus Christ is not a dormitory for sleeping saints, but rather a baroque bulging with spiritual soldiers eager to enter the battle. End of quote. The church is not a place where we come to be on holiday. Elect exiles are not called out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light so that we can sit here and just relax as as people serve us, as we come and consume Christianity. But instead, we are called to be soldiers. We are called to be in battle. We are called to stand and take our stance as soldiers in the kingdom of God, ready for battle. Ask any soldier who's been to war. I've never been to war. There's nothing boring about war could be challenging, it could be scary, but it's certainly not boring. A soldier who comes back from war will never say, oh yeah, that was cool. I was just bored the whole time while bullets were flying over me. That will never happen. And if we are at war, 
Not as sleeping saints, but as spiritual soldiers ready to enter the battle. And Christianity will not be boring. In fact, the stature, the position that the elect exile is supposed to take is covered in, in, chapter, in chapter 1, verses 2 and verses 14. Listen to what he says in, chapter, in, in verses 2, rather, uh, in verse 14. He says, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. Jump over to verses 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. As the same idea that appears in those two verses. It's the idea of obedience. There's nothing boring about obedience to Jesus Christ. That's the stance of the elect exile. That's the stance of the Christian. In fact, church, obedience is a curse word to a, a world that hates authority. So if we're going to stand as elect exiles in obedience to our captain, in obedience to our commander, which is Jesus Christ, it will seem as though we are swearing at the world. Obedience smells badly to a world that loves sin. Obedience is boring in a world that makes autonomy king. Obedience to Jesus Christ for those who trust him is not boring at all. In fact, here's the implication from what I said. If obedience to Jesus is boring, it's because you have found Jesus to be boring. And the only reason you would find Jesus boring is because you are in love with your sin. We may struggle with sin as elect exiles, but the minute we embrace it, the minute we cuddle with our sin, the minute you want to spoon your sin, Jesus Christ starts becoming boring. Because Jesus Christ reminds you of that sin. And anything else that is attached to Jesus Christ will seem boring. The Bible starts becoming boring. Prayer becomes boring. Let's go to church on Sunday. Because you're in love with your sin. Jesus Christ has become boring because you are in love with your sin. Let me, let me illustrate that this way. There's a lot of exiles in this room, right? In fact, if you believe in Jesus Christ, the Bible will call you an exile. But there's more immediate exiles, like Simba, right? Or Eleanor, right? They, they are immediate exiles, right? Because if stuff hits the fan now, they don't have ideas. It's tough. <laughs> but let's say Simba's uncle calls, or Eleanor's uh, uh, aunt calls. And says to Simba or Eleanor, some of their friends back in Zimbabwe and Uganda, hey, Eleanor, I'm seeing what you're putting on your status, WhatsApp status, or I see what you're tweeting on the internet, or your Facebook statuses, or the pictures that you're putting on Instagram. They don't, they don't represent how we raised you. They don't represent where you come from. If Simba or Eleanor are in love with South African culture so much, that call starts becoming boring. When the call from uncle's mangmang comes, he's like, no, I'm not going to answer this. Because that call is boring. It's going to remind him of the culture he's fallen in love with. It's going to remind him that he's not supposed to be living the way he's living. That's not how you were raised. That's not how you were taught. You're in love with this culture now. Therefore, what reminds you of home 
is boring. Home becomes boring when you're at home with your sin. I'll repeat that. It's tweetable. Write it down. Right. Home <laughs> becomes boring when you're at home with your sin. Home, heaven, becomes boring. Being with Jesus becomes boring when you're at home with your sin. Heaven is boring when you've made heaven for yourself on earth. It's another tweetable. Heaven <laughs> is boring when you've made heaven for yourself on earth. It's like our friends who go to America for a month and, and lose their accent. <laughs> you know, a guy grew up in the northwest in a village. His name is Ntibedi Kobedi. <laughs> he goes to Philadelphia for two weeks. And then when he comes back now, we're like, hey, Ntibedi Kobedi. He's like, no, it's save it, Kobedi. <laughs> save it, Kobedi. <laughs> He's lost his accent now. And you know those people, you've only been in Australia for a week, just for work. And now you come back with an Aussie accent, comrade. And that's what happens to us who are elect exiles when we start making home this earth or this world. We start losing our accent that our Christian brothers and sisters cannot even recognize us when we speak anymore. Because you sound exactly like the guy in your office. You sound exactly like those ladies in your complex that gossip about everybody else. You sound exactly like the people in traffic that are cussing everyone else. That anyone else who's Christian cannot hear you anymore. Your accent has changed. You've just been working wherever you're working for two months. Now there's a little bit of money in your pocket. Your accent changes. That's not what you learn from the scriptures. That's not the world or rather the, the, the family God has called you into. As we get into our passage this evening, here's where it's anchored. Here's the heart of this passage. Read with me verses 15 and 16. Listen to what Peter says to these exiles. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. That's the heart of being an elect exile. The word elect means you've been chosen. You've been separated. You've been called out of darkness into the kingdom of light. That's what governs you. That's what defines you. That's what gives you your identity. Holiness means you are distinct, you are different, you are separate, you are set apart. That's what it means. And as we go through this passage, I believe the heart Peter had for these exiles is the same heart I'm having for us this evening, that we would be more elect than exile. In fact, one of my favorite rappers, KB, has a song where he says, you, you can call me a Christian rapper. All I know is that I want to be more Christian than rapper. Meaning that I want Christianity to influence the raps and not the raps Christianity. And so as we live as exiles, let not our exile influence our election. We've been set apart. We've been called out of the kingdom of darkness. We've been called out of the rule of Satan. We've been called out of slavery from sin and death. And so therefore, let not where we live define us, but let our election define us. That somebody calls you an elect exile and you say amen and amen. All I know is that I would rather be more elect than exile. 
that's the heart of this passage, that we become more holy. Why? Because he who called us is holy. He who called us has called us for that purpose, to be holy. In fact, anything that is intimately connected to God is holy. His word, we call it Holy Bible. His house, we call that the holy house or the church. His rest is holy. His spirit, his son is holy. Because they're all intimately connected to him. So it only makes sense that his people are also holy. We are marked with that same family identity of holiness. Amen. Amen, amen. I want you to high-five your neighbor and say, let's be holy. Let's be holy. All right? There's a big word there that, that screams at us in, in verses 13 as we, as we start. And it's that word, therefore. And the word, therefore, indicates that there's something that came before it that will influence what comes after it. So, so what came before it? It's exactly the two weeks that David and Reggie covered. That's what comes before that word, therefore. Read with me verses 3 to verse 4. Listen to what Peter says. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is uh, imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. That's what came before that you've been called to be born again. Jesus Christ hung on a cross more than 2,000 years ago for your sins. While you were still a sinner, while you were still a rebel, while you were still an enemy to God, he hung on that cross so that you may be redeemed, so that you can sit here today if you have your faith and trust in Jesus and be called a Christian because you identify with what Jesus Christ has done for you on that cross. That's what we call the good news. The truth that Jesus Christ dies for sinners like us does not remain dead but rises from the grave proving that his defeated sin and death on your behalf and calls you to accept that gift for free. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to say anything but you just have to receive that gift and it's yours and you are called into the family. That's what comes before that word therefore. So what comes afterward is that if you're a Christian, live like it. If you profess to be a Christian, let's see it. If you're a teacher, you've been called to be a teacher, well, Monday morning, go to the classroom and teach. If you're a chef, well, let's see your food. If you're a doctor, I, my uncle in Tambisa believes he's a doctor, but he hasn't saved anyone. If you're a doctor, let's see you go into a hospital. Let's see you perform surgery. Let's see you help lives. Don't tell us as you're sitting here that you're a doctor, but you have nothing to prove for it. Don't tell us that you're a Christian, but we cannot see it in any area of your life. If you are a Christian, live as a Christian. And so as we continue with our sermon this evening, there's three areas of action. Three areas where we need to take action. Three areas where Peter calls these elect exiles to take action. The first area is the mind. Uh, The second area is our conduct. And the third area is relationships. So mind, conduct, uh, and relationships. And we'll start off with that first area of action. 
and that is the mind. Read again with me verses 13 till 14. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Peter says they should prepare their minds. So if you lived in the Middle East, uh, in the first century, when Peter said this, you exactly understand what he's saying. Because these dudes wore robes, and these robes were long. Uh, and so when he says, prepare your minds, he uses a term uh, that indicates that as you go into war, you need to pick up your robe, stick it into your belt, so that you're not restrained as you go into action, as you go into battle. That there's nothing that is restricting you. Uh, it's, it's, it's as though we would say, if it was today, roll up your sleeves. Roll up your sleeves, get down, and get dirty. Prepare your minds. Roll up the sleeves of your minds, as it were. Get down and get dirty. See, what Peter is speaking about here is the practical application of God's knowledge. He's not speaking about some some academic uh, excellence. He's not saying prepare your minds by, by getting a, a theological degree. He's not saying get your mind, prepare your minds by getting a PhD in theology. All, all those things are good. In fact, this morning we were celebrating some of the graduates who are studying Explore. Uh, praise the Lord for them. Amen and amen. But what he's saying is that if you're a Christian, you have to have the knowledge of God from the scriptures. Meaning that you're getting your nose stuck in the scriptures. You're echoing the same words that Paul says in Romans 12. Renew your minds on Wednesdays, on Sundays, once a month. No, daily. Renew your minds daily. I am getting stuck in God's word so that I can know what God is requiring of me. That's how I need to prepare my mind. He says we need to have a a discipline and a serious attitude about what God requires from us in his word. If we're going to get our minds prepared, he tells these exiles, get your noses stuck. Have a discipline. Have a serious attitude about God's word. I'm not standing here saying like, like I'm doing this every day. Again, I said it's not boring. It can be challenging, but it's not boring. We have to get our noses stuck in God's word so we know what he's requiring of us. You've been called to be holy, therefore be holy. And you can only know what holiness looks like if you get stuck in God's word. Amen. And if that is true, listen to what he says in the next line. And he says, being sober-minded. And we'll pause there. Only God's word can help us to be sober-minded. Because the opposite of being sober-minded is, is being drunk on self-indulgence. Sober-minded means you are aware of self. I'm aware that I'm a sinner. I'm aware that I have shortcomings. I'm aware that I need Jesus and I need his grace all the time. But being drunk on self-indulgence means that I'm not aware of myself In fact, I just want to satisfy my desires. I want to satisfy my flesh. I want to satisfy all the cravings of my body. We've all had a drunk friend. Amen. If you haven't said amen, you're the drunk friend. (laughs) (laughs) We've all had a drunk friend, right? It's too late, Prince. You're the drunk friend. (laughs) 
And when your friend is drunk and people are commenting on his or her behavior, there's a phrase that is universal that we all use. No, excuse him or excuse her. They're not themselves. Well, if you're not sober-minded and you claim to be an elect exile, well, you're not yourself. You are not yourself at all because disciplined restraint has been removed. Self-awareness has been compromised and you've entered into a state of self-indulgence. Chapter 2, verses 1, listen to what Peter says there. So put away all malice, all deceit, all hypocrisy and envy and all slander. When we are not sober-minded, this is where we find ourselves, identifying with the natives of the land and not living like elect exiles. We identify more with the natives of this land than those who are elect. So if we are going to live holy, it's going to require discipline, it's going to require commitment, and this is the same echo that Peter is telling these elect exiles more than 2,000 years ago. Anything that succeeds in this world succeeds on discipline and commitment. Students are writing, if you're not disciplined or committed, are you going to fail? It's not a secret. You don't have to get a degree to know that. (laughs) So why would we not employ the same amount of discipline, if not even more, and commitment to our pursuit of holiness in God so that we are always sober-minded? And here's the thing, this discipline of commitment is not going to happen on our strength. It's not going to happen on the strength of these Christians at all. Verses 13, uh, the last part, tells us how it's going to happen. Listen to what Peter says. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. How will I remain disciplined? How will I remain committed to sticking my nose every single morning in God's word so that I may remain sober-minded as I go into my work, as I go wherever it is that I'm hanging out. How is this going to happen? Well, fix your eyes on Jesus. Set your hope on the truth that Jesus Christ is returning. Whenever you invest something, you wait eagerly for the return of investment. Why won't we wait for our king? Living holy, knowing that he will reward us. When he sees us, he'll say, well done, my good and faithful servant. So why don't we do any, everything that we do in our lives for those words? Eagerly waiting for the return of our king. If we're not living holy, we're not believing that he's returning. If he is returning, and it is true, and you hold it fast in your heart, well, live like it. Let's live in a way that demonstrates that Jesus Christ is coming back. One of my favorite hymns, in fact, this is the favorite hymn I have, right? It speaks about fixing your eyes on Jesus. The lyrics of the hymn say, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things on earth will grow grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Turn your eyes upon Jesus then lust will lose its power. Lust will lose its glow. That honey that you think is hot and you know she's not yours, she will lose her glow if your eyes are turned on Jesus. (laughs) That money that you're chasing is glistening right now. It will only lose its shine if you turn your eyes upon Jesus. 
All your aspirations and pursuits that are ungodly will lose their shine if you turn your eyes upon Jesus. But if we remove our eyes from Jesus, everything else starts looking shiny. Your ambitions look shiny. Your lust looks shiny. Your greed looks shiny. Your gossip looks shiny. Your malice looks shiny. And everything is fighting for your attention. So turn your eyes on the cross of Jesus Christ and what he's done for you, knowing that he will return. And if that happens, it leads us to verses 14. Listen to what he says there. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. If we are fixing our eyes on Jesus, it means that we are following his commands. It means we want to be obedient to our captain. And so he calls you, or calls the elect exiles, obedient children. In other translations, it says, the children of obedience. Meaning that your parent is obedient. You belong to obedience. If your eyes are fixed on Jesus Christ. That's what happens to you. That's what happens in your mind. And if that is true, he says, do not then turn from this new life that you have. And turn back to your passions of your former ignorance. Ignorance is not having knowledge of something. Right? You walked in ignorance before you knew Jesus. Before Jesus, you knew that lying was wrong. But you did not know that it violates God's character. Because God is truth. And if the standard for the elect exile is holiness, lying is just not a bad thing. We know it violates God's character because God says he's the truth. When you watched stuff that you're not supposed to watch, pornographic material, you knew it was wrong before. You met Jesus. But you didn't know that it violated the image of God. The standard becomes higher when you know who Jesus is. You knew that stealing was wrong. But you didn't know that it spits on the hand of God's provision. It's as though more than 2,000 years ago, when Jesus Christ was hanging on that cross, God played B.I.G. If you don't know... Now you know. Dot, dot, dot. (laughs) Before the cross, you didn't know. After the cross, now you know. So what are you going to do with it? Peter says to these exiles, do not be conformed to the uh, former ignorance or the passions, rather, of your former ignorance. Do not live that way. Before you didn't know. But now you know. And Peter would have made an easy thing for himself or his job easier if he just said, yo, just don't do the stuff, right? But in verses 13, he gave us hope. He gave them hope. He's not just going to say, yo, let me slap your hand, stop doing that. But he says again, set your hope fully in Jesus Christ. That's the only way that we can remain sober-minded. Listen to what uh, 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 Wesby says um, He's a a commentator. He says that unsaved people lack spiritual intelligence. And this causes them to give themselves to all kinds of fleshly and worldly indulgences. This, therefore, should not be true of the believer. End of quote. This should not be true for those 
who are in exile as elect for God. Instead, they should prepare their minds and remain sober-minded. Amen. And I pray that this may be true of us. And that is the first area of action. We looked at the mind. Now let's jump over to the conduct. Let's look at what he says the conduct of these exile, uh, elect exiles should be. Verses 15 till 17. Uh, listen to what he says. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds... Conduct yourselves with fear through your, uh, throughout the time of your exile. So what he's saying there, he's calling these believers to an alternative lifestyle. Right? You, you were once in the kingdom of darkness. Don't walk like that again. You belong to a new lifestyle now. And he says something profound about how they should live. The pattern they should follow in this new lifestyle. And this pattern is God himself. He who called you is holy. Therefore, be holy. I am holy. Therefore, you should be holy. So the pattern they should be following is God himself. This raises the bar for these elect exiles. Holiness is not just an option. It's not just a suggestion. It's not an if or maybe. But he's saying that this holiness that God has called them to is an essential So they cannot compartmentalize their lives. They cannot say that I'm only holy at the evening service on Sunday. But I have to be holy everywhere I find myself. I'm holy Monday to Monday. I'm holy at work. I'm holy at school. I'm holy at at, at the gym. I'm holy everywhere. I'm holy in all the relationships I find myself in. They would have been getting this letter and they're thinking to themselves, well, You probably don't know the oppressive Roman bosses that we work under. Peter says, no, I know them. And even there, you need to be holy. Somebody in the congregation is thinking to themselves, well, I'm married, and I just recently got converted, but this guy I'm with is a non-Christian. What should I do? Peter says, stay in there and be holy. Well, I'm a young guy who recently got converted, and I'm in one of these churches that you're writing the letter to, Peter. Uh, But when school is done, I'm going back home to my pagan family. What should I do when I get there? Be holy. I'm a Jewish young girl, and I just recently got converted, and I live with traditional Jewish parents. What should I do when I get home? Be holy. Peter, you're not getting this. Well, there's people in this church who are denied access to the local soccer club because they belong to this new Christian cult. What should they do? Remain holy. We're not allowed access into grocery stores. Our kids are kicked out of schools because now our parents belong to this new Christian cult. What should we do, Peter? Remain holy. Stay holy because that's what you've been called to do. When Peter is saying this, he's thinking of Israel. In fact, he's quoting uh, words from Exodus 19. God saves the Israelites out of Egypt, and he says, You will be holy, for I've saved you, and I'm holy. That's the reason why I called you, so that in your holiness you may attract all the other nations to worship this one true God, Yahweh. So as the punches are coming in their persecution, as the insults are coming in their persecution, God says, Remain holy holy because I am redeeming the universe through your holiness. 
I've called you to be holy. I've called you to be different. And I'm doing something through your holiness for the world and for your sake. Listen to what our steward uh, Briscoe says. He says, to be holy is not to be stale or to be sterile, but rather be refreshingly, distinctly different. End of quote. He says, holiness is refreshing. How you speak should be refreshing compared to everybody else around you. How you live should be refreshing compared to anybody else around you. Even how you respond to this persecution should be refreshing compared to anybody else who would be going through the same thing. Last week, uh, Reggie said when when these uh, new converts became Christians, they they lost out their biological inheritance. So your father was going to give you the 6.6 million Martin says I have, and now you become a Christian, and now you're not getting the 6.6 million. How do you respond to that? He says, love them. Respond in a way that is refreshingly, distinctively different. That anyone else around you would say, that can only be God, because this is madness. In any other situation, this should not be happening. Go burn your father. Go steal the 6.6. But instead, you're going to respond in love. Instead, you're still going to pray for him, even though you've lost your inheritance. Respond in a way that is refreshing to those around you. Peter was there uh, in chapter 5 of Matthew when Jesus was preaching in the Sermon of the Mount. And Jesus tells these believers to be salt and light. And it's the same idea that Peter is telling these uh, elect exiles to be. Be salt and light. What does salt do? It preserves. They didn't have fridges in the first century. How did their meat not go rotten? Well, there was salt poured on the meat so it does not go rotten. How can Midrand not be as rotten as it can be? Well, live holy. Be salt at your workplace. That your holiness attracts people to this one true God that you believe so that the sin where you work can be reduced as more people come to know and love Jesus. Be light. Illuminates in the darkness. Respond in a way that is refreshing and different. So that when people see you coming at a party or coming anywhere to a briar, wherever it is that you gather with people, they know this guy, this chick is coming with something that is refreshingly different in how they speak and how they conduct themselves. That's why you have been elected. That's why these Christians have been elected. The supreme purpose of the election is holiness. In chapter 12 of Hebrews, the, the writer says, without holiness, you won't see God. It's a high standard, but if we fix our eyes on Jesus, it is a possible standard to achieve. In fact, he shows them how this is possible to achieve. Listen to what he says in verses 17. If you call on him, As father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. How can I remain holy when everything is going pear-shaped around me, when everyone else is going against me? Well, remember that God is your father. At the same time, remember that God is a judge. And the idea of God being a father might seem encouraging in the pursuit of holiness. But even the idea of God being a judge is also encouraging. 
Here's how Father is encouraging. He says, when you pursue holiness, remember that you are part of God's family. He's drawn you in. He he loves you. He protects you. He cares for you. He nurtures you. You belong somewhere now. So that should inspire holiness from you. You know where you belong. You know who you're part of. So that should inspire in a, a way that you live that will reflect that you belong to this new covenant family. And he says God is a judge, meaning he's impartial. He's fair to all his children. There's no mask with God. God will not let us indulge ourselves in our sin. So if the fatherhood of God gives us the privilege of pursuing holiness in our conduct, the truth that God is a judge gives us the responsibility to guard our conduct and our pursuit of holiness. God being a judge helps us to have responsibility, to know that anything that we do, when we try and choose against him and we don't want to pursue holiness, he won't put a mask. So that idea, that truth, refines how we live, refines our conduct. Something like an African mother. Reggie laughs because he knows. Your African mother loves you. She'll tell you she loves you. She'll buy you all star. She'll cook for you. But they cross the line. You know that look that all African mothers give. It says a lot. Other African mothers don't even give you the look. They tell you straight, one child got <laughs> Just those words. Help guard your conduct, comrade. But God is actually more loving than our African mothers. Listen to what a gentleman by the name of Helios says. He says, this is not a fear of cowardice or slavery, nor of self-concerned fear of death or punishment, but the proper esteem of an obedient and healthy child, secure in a close and warm relationship with a much-admired father. A good earthly father would expect obedience from his children, but at the same time, would not want them to be afraid of him. End of quote. And that's our God. He wants you to know that he will judge everything impartially. He wants you to know that he's looking at everything and we will all account for our sins and our mistakes. And every time we choose to go against our pursuit of holiness, to follow our own desires, he will judge that. But at the same time, he says you can approach that judge And go to him and say, Papa, I've messed up. I know you see everything. And you know what I did yesterday. You know what I was thinking of right now before I came to you. Please forgive me. And he will forgive you. He's done it on the cross. And he promises to do it over and over and over again until he returns. So let the truth of knowing that he's a judge... Give you responsibility in how you live. But let the privilege of knowing him as a father send you back to him when you've messed up. This is family judgment. It's with love. He judges to find the good in us. So let's go to him on our knees and cry out to him. If this is true of these exiles, Peter is saying to them, if this is how you're going to live, then there's two things. 
that we'll see from your conduct. One is that there won't be real attachment to this earth. There's no everlasting attachment to anything on this earth on your behalf. Two, if that is true, you will still have a high standard to maintain of holiness. So your work, your family, your dreams, your aspirations, your investments, as much as these things are good things, you don't have an everlasting attachment towards them. And even if that is true, you will still conduct yourself holy in all these things. You'll conduct yourself holy with your family. You'll conduct yourself holy in your work. You'll conduct yourself holy in your investments. You'll conduct yourself holy in your dreams, in your aspirations, but knowing that I don't have a real attachment to all these things because this is not my home. And that's what Peter wants these exiles to know in their conduct. And that's what he wants us to know of our own conduct this evening. That's the second area of action. We've seen the area of, of action, which is the mind. We've seen the area of action, which is conduct. Uh, go with me on the last area of action, which is relationships. Uh, verses 22, we'll read there, and then straight after verse 22, we'll jump over to verses uh, 1 of chapter 2. Uh, listen to what he says there. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. So put away all malice and all deceits and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. And so what Peter is saying here is that if it is true that you've come to believe the gospel, you've given your life to Jesus, well, that truth is supposed to impact your mind. And your thoughts are supposed to impact your conduct. And if your conduct has changed, then it's supposed to influence your relationships. Amen. See, Peter has Jesus' words in mind when he says this. Uh, the same words that we see in the Gospel of John. When, when Jesus says to his disciples, By this people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. How does the world know that God has called us? How does the world know that you're an elect exile? Well, it's how you love other elect exiles. That is the defining mark of an elect exile, how I love other exiles. This is a holy love. In fact, the term that Peter uses there is sincere brotherly love. What this means is that this love is fully stretched. It's a love that does not hold back. It's a love that gives itself completely. It's sold out for others. That's what a sincere brotherly love is. It's the same term that's used of Jesus when he's praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. When Jesus is on his knees praying to God, realizing what he's going to have to do now, which is take the cross and the weight of that. And the Bible tells us that he was even sweating blood. That's the kind of love that Peter is speaking of here, a love that does not hold back, a love that stretches itself fully, a love that gives itself for its brothers and sisters. That's the kind of love that we have. If we have been impacted by the gospel, our thoughts are being transformed by this very gospel, our conduct is being transformed by those thoughts, our relationships should reflect this pattern. 
I was listening to YFM uh, this week, and they had this lady uh, on the show. She's a very dodgy lady. I won't mention her name. Um, but she's a businesswoman. Uh, she's starting a career in rap now. Um, anyway, they asked her like, how she achieves all of this stuff. And she said, well, me and my family have always had faith in God. We believe that God loves us. We believe that God gives us everything that we have. If it wasn't for God, I wouldn't be where I am today. And so the DJ was impressed. So the DJ says, wow, with all that you do, right, the various things that she does, and you're a businesswoman on top of that, and now you're starting a, rap, a career in rap. So in all of this, where do you find time to go to church? And she said, church? Why would I go to church? And she said it in a way to the DJ like, you're an idiot. Why would you ask me that? Who goes to church? See, when she, man, when she said that she believes in God who provides for her, it was a figment of her imagination. It's not the God of the elect exiles. It's impossible for you to love the head and hate his body. Listen to what Webster says. He says, it is impossible for you to love the truth and hate the brethren. You cannot say you love Jesus, but you hate his church. That is not a sincere brotherly love. That is not a love that is stretched out, completely sold out. Imagine if these elect exiles heard that radio interview in their persecution. Our properties are being plundered. Our kids are getting killed. Our brothers are being torched on the streets. Our churches are being burnt down. We are losing our jobs because we're Christians. When it's convenient for you, you want to identify with our God. But you hate us in our exile. What that radio interview showed is that you cannot do this thing alone. You cannot be in exile alone. That's where Satan wants these Christians to be, doing exile alone. Because that's when he catches you. That's when he has, he's filled with you. So you need to do it with your brothers and sisters. In fact, again, uh, I'm pointing attention to Eleanor again. Uh, but there's something that happens uh, with Eleanor that I find so encouraging. Whenever her family from Uganda calls her and, and asks her how life is, they never refer to us as her friends. They don't refer to us as the South Africans that she lives with. But they refer to us as Eleanor's family. In our imperfection, we're not perfect, but they're seeing a glimpse of this truth that Peter is speaking of here. That we are a family. We belong together. There's a brotherly love that is amongst us because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. Earlier on when I started, I said, we all elect exiles if we sit here. Simba and Eleanor might be immediate exiles. But here's the truth that Peter is trying to show us here. All of us are exiles. If you truly identify as an elect exile, you have no allegiance to South Africa. You have no allegiance to Africa. You have allegiance to the kingdom of God. Simba is not more of an exile in South Africa than I am. We're both exiles in South Africa. Because this is not my home. 
I love Nkosi Sigelela. I want to sing it everywhere. Ask my wife. Even when she wakes up, I'm like, Nkosi Sigelela, the Africa. All the time. But it's not my national anthem. I don't belong to South Africa. I belong to heavenly citizenship. I belong to the kingdom of God. And if that is true of us, then we'll have no real attachments to where we are. We're going out on Friday night with Simba, and he was driving. He forgot his license, and he ran back, and he's like, Hey, comrade, remember me for an appeal. And it's true. If he gets caught without a driving license, right, he might get bribed more than I am because I'm South African. And that point, I can hold on to that as a privilege because I'm South African. I have a green ID. But I won't hold on to that because I'm not South African. I identify with my brother because we're both exiles in this world. I think how cruel it is that he will be treated differently just because he comes from another country geographically. I identify with him in the brokenness that we both experience in this country. This is not our home. This is not our country. But instead, we are elect exiles belonging to the kingdom of God. So if church is boring, you've probably stopped stopped loving the people of God. That's the only way church can become boring. When I stop loving those around me who are elect exiles, obviously they're going to bore me. Obviously I'm going to be self-indulgent and want to satisfy myself and not serve them. So church becomes boring. So love your brothers and sisters in your exile because you cannot do exile alone. The persecution that we experience from the world, from Satan, from our own flesh You need to walk with other brothers and sisters. Amen. And just to end off with these last thoughts, how how is all of this held together? How how is the mind, the the conduct, and our relationships held together? Read with me verses 18 to 21. Listen to what he says. Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundations of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Jump over to verses 23 with me. Since you have been born again, not with, peri- with perishable seed, but with imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like the grass, and all its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of God remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. That's what holds all of this together. The truth that we have been ransomed from our former ways of ignorance, the ways that we inherited from our forefathers, our greatest, greatest grandfather Adam sinned, and all others after him sinned, and when we were born, we willingly sinned as well. And this tells us that we've been rescued from that, we've been ransomed, we've been bought from that way of living. So this should inspire us to live 
this way in our minds, in our conduct, in our relationships. The, the, the highest commodity in God's economy is the blood of Jesus Christ. And Peter tells these exiles, and he tells us this evening, that's what you've been bought with. Not with the Zim dollar, not with the Rand, not with the American dollar, but you've been bought with the blood of Jesus Christ. That should really infuse fire in our bones to live as elect exiles in our time of exile. The same Jesus uh, who has been given to you did not remain dead on that cross, but he rose uh, from, that, from, that, from that grave. And if that is true of him, he says to these elect exiles, you also will be raised from your death. So persecution, the suffering that you're going through right now, all the hardships that you're going through right now, they will come to an end eventually. If this Jesus rose from the grave, he will raise you from the grave. And all of this came from the living and abiding word of God. Trust this word. It is living. It's not dead. It's abiding. It's forever. And this word has been given to God, rather from God to us, so that we may live from it. So live in your exile, transforming your mind with the same word, letting those same thoughts that are transformed by the gospel influence your conduct so that our relationships change, that as we love each other, we reflect to the world what God has called us to do. When people see Christ Church Midran, they should say there's something refreshingly, distinctly different about you guys. I cannot put my hand on it, but I want to come and investigate it. And when they get closer to us, all they see is the cross of Jesus Christ. Let that be true of us in our time of exile. I want to pray that God will help us with that. It is a high standard, but again, it is possible because our King is seated on the throne. Amen. Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, we, we just want to thank you so much that we could all gather like this this evening. That, Lord, you have called all of us, Lord, from our different silos, our different backgrounds, our different communities, Lord. And you've brought us into your kingdom, into your family. Not so that we can be consumer Christians. But so that we can live as soldiers reflecting your truth to the world. I pray, Father, that you may help us with that. Ground our hearts in the gospel, Lord. I pray, Father, that by the power of your spirit, you may help us daily. And work takes over, when the stresses of life take over, when, when kids are making noise, when, when marriages seem tough, that we remember the foot of the cross. We cannot live in our exile the way you want us to if we're not rooted in you. Pray that you help us, Lord. We long for you to do this in our lives, in our hearts. For our benefit, for the benefit of Midrand, and for the sake of your glory. Let's pray for all of these things in your wonderful name, Jesus. Amen, amen. Amen. amen.